Welcome to Alive and Kick In, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than an OJ Simpson murder trial. Come on, you know you're watching it. It's bloody good too, isn't it? Anyway, thank you for downloading as always. I'm Ash Rose, here for your weekly slice of 90s football nostalgia. Uh, thank you also for the kind comments on last week's show. I think we had a, we had a lot of fun last week talking back at some memorable music-inspired football themes from the past. I think we managed to even cover everything as well which we we normally leave something out but i think we got everything covered and we had some great comments from you lot on the social so thank you very much for that glad you enjoyed it as well on the subject of music actually i'm going to go off piece just for a tad because i watched the brits last night which is something i i don't always do but uh, the wife wanted to watch it as well so we watched the brits and i don't know if it's a sign of my age or because you know what i'm going to say but it just didn't feel as good as some of the shows in the 90s did it i mean don't get me wrong i actually i like the show which is kind of rare in this in this era but it just didn't have that kind of same oomph and kind of grit as the 90s show did of the big bands that used to be around then it felt more like a like a smash hits poll winners party for me to be honest um saying that I'd, I'd managed to dig out an old cd actually while i was looking for stuff last for last week's show which was the best of brits 1997 and i'll tell you my friends it had some stonewall tunes on that um so it just sort of reminded me as i was watching it last night but there was no sadly no bob mortimer and burroughs let's dance which we we discussed last week anyway i digress let's get back to what we're here for and i'm so excited uh, about this week's show because uh, it's our third tournament theme show which mean if you haven't listened to the first two which were on of course italia 90 and the forgotten tournament that we like to call euro 92 then check them out on itunes but we're going back 21 years ago to the land of the free the home of the brave and host for USA 94. And I'm so excited um, because I often refer to this as uh, my favourite World Cup. And I think sometimes that gets a kind of mixed reaction, to be honest. Um, But I suppose let me try and explain why. I think, well, firstly, let me say I've got a lot of love for Italia 90. Um, That's where my first football memories began and kind of my football education uh, was really born in Italia 90. But USA 94 was that one that really always stood out for me because I think I was that little bit older even though i didn't see all the games live because of course there were unusual times and i had school in the morning and even though england didn't qualify i just like the idea of it being held in the u.s i mean i've always had a fascination with that country uh, mainly down to, to roy wegley which i'm sure is going to get a few mentions tonight but i just love the razzmatazz that america gave it and the, the big deal they made it a bit like they do with the super bowl and things like that they really went to town in this country that wasn't really used to soccer as they call it um it just it just captured me uh, as a kid and uh, i loved that brazil team as well i even had the the home shirt at the time that i made my parents buy um it's and it had so many big names of that era at the peak of the game and it was a fun and, and colorful world cup and that was only let down really by an unfortunate and drab final um, but we'll talk through all that with my guests in just a sec. Plus, we have two interviews for you once again. Uh, we are really spoiling you once. And they're two great interviews as well uh, for a player who played in USA 94 and someone also covered it. But before I do, let me just remind you, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at AK90s. And keep any 90s images or questions coming. We'd love to hear from you. Um, shout out to Harry Gutteridge, who uh, has been uh, pointing us with questions and some stuff on Twitter. Cheers for that, mate. Keep them coming. Um, plus, if you want to listen to any of the previous 24 shows we've done now, uh, we've covered so much of the decade. Uh, we're available on the website at ak90s.co.uk, uh, on SoundCloud, and of course of on iTunes. And uh, if while you're on iTunes, you can call subscribe to the show as well. So just one click of the button. And you can tell the world what you think of the show, too, with a little review and a rating as well. So that would be very much appreciated. But let's first meet tonight's guest, then. Uh, firstly, we enjoyed his band so much last week. He's back once again like a renegade master. From Media 73, Wolves fan, Graham Large. How are you doing, Graham? Very well, thanks, Ash. 
Good to have you back. And then we have two newbies, which is always great because we get some new memories from these guys. So firstly, it's hello to Liverpool fan and from Statsite Squawker, Amar Singh. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And finally, give us a view from across the pond. Uh, it's Kick TV's Womble, Ryan Bailey. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing tremendously well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, guys. We'll get your CVs in just a minute. But here's a few things that happened this week in the 90s. And there's not so many, so but just a couple. On the 27th of February 1999, Robbie Fowler and Graham Lasso clashed during Chelsea's 2-1 win over Liverpool with some suggestive actions from Robbie Fowler towards Lasso. On the 1st of March 1995, Ronnie Rosenthal scores a hat-trick for Spurs as they come from 2-0 down to beat Southampton 6-2 in the FA Cup. And on the 2nd of March 1993, Spurs lose 6-0 to Sheffield United in their heaviest defeat for 15 years at Bramall Lane. Just a few things there for this week that happened in the 90s. So let's talk CVs then. Graham, we did your first part last week. We talked to players and, of course, the legendary Wolves, Steve Ball. Um, so we're moving on to matches. What's the best Wolves match of the 90s for you then? Well, unfortunately, the best Wolves match of the 90s that's probably most fondly remembered by most fans, I didn't actually attend. Um, it was the FA Cup fourth round uh, replay against Sheffield Wednesday, which ended in a penalty shootout. And I was at home ill that night. and oh, no. uh, my, my nan went in my place, regrettably. She did bring me back a nice, uh, nice programme signed by um, Andy Gray, though. But um, it was a small consolation for missing that game. But um, the best game that I probably remember, and that man's going to come up again in the conversation, it was in uh, March 1996. And it was a, uh, a lunchtime kickoff against Birmingham City. Wolves were 2-1 down with about six minutes remaining in that game. If you, if you happen to catch the highlights on YouTube, you'll see a remarkable fumble for a penalty by uh, Kevin Francis, the Birmingham giant oh, strike. God, massive one, yeah, I remember. Yeah, that. yeah, where he attempts to uh, kick the ball, completely misses the ball and falls over one of the defender's legs instead and the referee awards a penalty. Um, just put us 2-1 down with 6-0 remaining. We then had, um, went immediately up the other end of the pitch. A soft penalty was given in our favour this time. Uh, Andy Thompson converted and then with literally the last kick of the game, it couldn't be anybody else. But Bully latches onto uh, a uh, threaded through ball and smashes the ball past the past the keeper in the uh, in the final kick of the game for us to win three two. Um, th- there's probably no other game that's delivered that level of drama in a six seven minute period for me. Mm, good stuff. And the uh, your nineties game outside of Molyneux? Uh, I've got to go with uh, I've got to go with a predictable one here. It's got to be the. 4-3 Liverpool the, Castle game. The 90s game. It has to be. It has to be. I, I, watched, the, I watched the highlights back on uh, YouTube a few days ago just to refresh my memory. And just some of the, some of the goals in that game. I mean, particularly, um, particularly the uh, goal from uh, Les Ferdinand. You can mm. put the check in the post for that name drop there. But uh, <laughs> the, um, the, the touch to turn for that first goal was just... And the, and the pace that he managed to put on the ball for that first goal. And then there was a, that... that piece of brilliance from uh, Espria as well but it was just a, an end to end game and I, I remember watching that at the time thinking I'll probably watch one of the best games of football ever here tonight and of course it was um, a year or so later there was another 4-3 yeah. which although there was plenty of drama in that game it just didn't quite live up to the level of the first one but um, it, it it just has to be that game there's no 
no other one's come close, really. Yeah, we we did talk about that a lot in our uh, matches of the uh, decade pod earlier in the season. We actually spoke to Roy Evans as well. Great interview. Check that out on iTunes. Pulsating affair. But talking Liverpool, let's turn to Amar then. Uh, first time on, we we have Liverpool fans, and it's usually a couple of names that come up for their favourite 90s player. But who are you going to go for for Liverpool? I'm probably not going to be throwing you a curveball here. It's going to be Robbie Fowler <laughs> God himself. Um, and I imagine a lot of Liverpool fans yeah. of a similar age and generation would say the same thing. But for me, he was just an unbelievable natural talent. So gifted as a striker. A bit of a scallywag as well. So he endeared himself with the fans. Um, and he just seemed to have this incredible record. Um, and I, I remember a lot in the 90s, as a young lad, putting CFAX on to follow the Liverpool scores, which is what we had to do back then yep. if the match wasn't on Good TV. C-Fax, and, yeah. and Fowler would, exactly, and Fowler would be that player, that name that would come up on CFAX all over, over and over again. So for me, Fowler was the ultimate CFAX player. Yeah, and then outside of Anfield, uh, the, your favourite 90s player? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I have to say, I mean, there's so many great players in the 90s. I think for me, um, I'd say it's out of two, really. Uh, Brazilian Ronaldo. Yeah. Just Ronaldo, as he was just known then. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah. And uh, Zidane. Uh, Yeah. For me, both of them were incredible. France 98 and and, and the podcast you do on France 98, I'm sure will feature both of them heavily. Yeah. But for me, they were just, uh, you know, Ronaldo remains one of the great strikers of all time. Uh, Zidane, for me, as a player, unbelievably great uh, midfielder, but also symbolised something, uh, a reawakening in France, really, um, and uh, a time where kind of, uh, France needed a multicultural hero, you know. So I think he was just um, he was he was symbolic of, of of a new era for France, and I think he was amazing too. So if I had to pick one, I'd go for Zidane. Mm, good choice, good choice. Moving on then uh, to well, I think this time the first time we've had Wimbledon actually. So that's good to to have some a new team. Ryan, your favourite nineties player at Wimbledon. This is a tough choice for me because the nineties was very much my very favourite decade for our club. It was our most successful, obviously, in the Premier League. Um, I, I, I was tempted to go for Oyvind Leonardson, who uh, Aman will know because he, he went to Liverpool after us, obviously. Um, outrageous he, choice. Outrageous. <laughs> outrageous why? Outrageous why? I don't know. I guess for Liverpool fans, he was just an, uh, another mediocre signing, really. Oh, he was anything but mediocre <laughs> when he was wearing blue and yellow, I can tell you that. He was just he, he was one of the first Norwegian players that came to us, and obviously we had Norwegian owners coming in, and that was kind of the beginning of the end, which is a negative thing, but he was very much a positive. He was kind of a cult figure, and I understand yeah. he has that, that status with Norway as well. Apparently, a Leo run is the kind of run he did with his kind of smart movements. Apparently, that's, uh, that, that's derived from him. Um, but I'm not, I'm not actually going to go for Leo, even though he was one of my favourite players. I had his shirt for many years. I also had the shirt of this guy, uh, Robbie Earl. Oh, okay. Can't say yeah. a bad word about Robbie Earl. You know, sort of our mid- man in the midfield. Uh, when France 98 happened, he represented Jamaica, yeah. and he scored Jamaica's first ever goal. I can remember just jumping off the couch. I was so, so happy for him. <laughs> Absolute legend, Robbie L. And he, his, his career ended um, when he got a kick in the stomach, and he got a ruptured pancreas, and it was a horrible way for his career to end. He's actually responsible for my favourite all-time moment of football, uh, which I don't think will ever be topped. It was at Old Trafford in 1997, the FA Cup fifth round. Old, uh, Man United were the holders of the FA Cup. Little old Wimbledon went up there. 89th minute, Paul Scholes scores a goal. We go up the other end having a last-ditch attack. Alan Kimball cross comes in. Robbie L nods it in <laughs> past Peter Schmeichel. 1-1, get the replay, goes to Selhurst Park, and we beat them. I was there at Old Trafford. I was there at Selhurst Park too. But that Old Trafford game, 
uh, I wasn't very old. I was like 13 or 14. But people were jumping all over me. There was probably only 150 Wimbledon fans there, but they were going bonkers. And it felt like we were making all the noise there. And I don't know. I just... I feel like in my life, nothing's ever going to top that in terms of football. <laughs> Good. What happened to Robbie L? Because he was always on as a pundit, ITV, early on after he retired. He kind of just stopped doing it, didn't he? Well, he got in a bit of trouble at the, uh, was it the 2010 World Cup when he was selling, uh, selling on his ticket allocation? Oh, yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. In trouble for that. that. But um, yeah. he's, on, he's on the telly here every week. Oh, he's he's, he States. does um, NBC. Him and Robbie Musto do NBC's oh, coverage. And they're very good at it, actually. 90s. Yeah, absolutely. And outside of uh, Selhurst Park and... What would you say your favourite player of the 90s was? Oh, it's, hard, it's very hard to disagree with Zidane, but in terms of players that I saw regularly playing in the Premier League, I hate to say it, but I also love to say David Ginola. He was mm. one of those players that always really excited me, all those, you know, even though I really despised the way he'd go down, particularly when he was playing against us. I just thought he, he just had, there were some players who had the magic, and I felt like he had the magic. Yeah, good choice. Now, we've had him a couple of times, especially from Spurs fans. And as we always mention, him winning the 1999 Player of the Year, despite May United being the treble, always makes us smile on here. But that's moved <laughs> to 1994. And before we talk to the guys, um, I've got someone to set the scene uh, of the tournament in the States. Um, he was there as a one well, of his first gig as a media representative for Capital Gold, no less, proper 90s name. Uh, he's currently commentator for the BBC. Steve, Wal- Steve Wilson shares his views on USA 94 with us. Before we talk to the guys, here is us talking to me earlier in the week on Alive and Kicking. Steve Wilson, uh, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you for talking to us. That's a pleasure. Hi. We were talking USA 94 this week, and we've, we've discovered that that was your first World Cup, so that, that's the start of the beginning. Um, you were working in radio. What was it like to, to cover such a big event? Oh, well, it was, um, I, I mean, I had to sort of pinch myself, really. I was working for Capital Radio, which um, was the big football, independent radio football station in London. Um, Jonathan Pierce and me and uh, a fellow called Dave Clark, who is now on Sky Sports presenting the darts. Of course, yeah. Um, Julian, Julian Waters, who's Sky Sports News. Um, and... Um, uh, Rob Watton, who's also Sky. So that was the team of Capital Radio people. Um, and yeah, I was 26. I think I'd been working at Capital since about nine, late 1990, 91. So I hadn't been in the industry very long. But the great thing about Capital Radio was that they, they were the big independent radio yeah. station with yeah. bigger budgets than anybody else. So they covered World Cups and Olympics. And um, so off I went to America. Um, I'd never been to America before either. So, um, so you know, as, um, as a sort of fairly rookie reporter... Um, it was an absolute dream come true when the bosses turned around and said, we're going to send you to the World Cup. I couldn't believe it, really. I, I mean, my, the first World Cup I remember very vaguely is, is 74. Um, 78, I had very good memories of. But, you know, to actually go to a World Cup was, uh, was absolutely um, one of those pinch yourself moments. Yeah, it's fantastic to be told I was going. What games uh, did you get to cover then? Uh, what, what, what memories can you uh, remember from those games? Yeah, well, my job, uh, I covered the sort of uh, Orlando and New York matches in the group stages. So um, that meant that I was involved in the Republic of Ireland group because Mm. you probably remember that they played in both those venues. So um, I remember getting off the plane. I flew into uh, Orlando and actually Sam Allardyce was sitting on the same row of seats as me, uh, economy. I think he was the manager of Notts County at the time. and uh, we landed in Orlando and, um, you know, this is how kind of naive I was because 
Orlando Airport, obviously all air-conditioned. In the airport, you step into an air-conditioned taxi. I read all these stories about the heat and everyone was going to be, you know, the players were going to be really struggling in the heat. Taxi took us to the hotel and I was thinking, it's not that hot, really. <laughs> of course, I hadn't even realized that I was in the air-conditioning. And then I can actually remember when I stu- stepped out of the taxi into this heat, it was like being hit around the face by a wet fish, you know, by a hot, mm. wet fish. Um, I was kind of like, blimey, this is hot. And, um, I mean, it was a really strange venue to choose. And I can only imagine that um, the organizing committee had, you know, chosen it probably because there was a lot of money put in from Disney, yeah. you know, um, to, to get matches played in Orlando. But if you've ever been to Orlando, anyone who's ever been there will know that at that time of year, mid-afternoon, there's pretty much always, uh, you can guarantee, there's a massive thunderstorm and it pours down for about... 45 minutes, lightning, thunder, and all the rest of it, and then it'll stop as quickly as it started. And uh, I think as a result of that, they kicked off most of the Orlando games at about 12.30, the hottest time of the day. It was uh, crazy, really. Yeah. Um, and that's what gave the Irish such problems, of course, um, playing in that heat at that time of day. Um, but I remember watching Holland play Belgium in the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. Uh, Norway were involved in that group as well. And um, and then I went up to New York and the giant stadium, which I can't believe it really. It just goes to show how many stadiums they have in the States. But they've knocked down that stadium now, built a new one. But it was a fantastic stadium. It was like it was a bit like the new camp in design. Not quite as big, but it did mm. hold about 85, 90,000 or something. Um, and going up there and watching Italy play Norway. And um, I didn't see the Ireland-Italy game, which of course was the famous one where Ray Houghton scored the winning goal for Ireland but um, but it was a fantastic experience as a kind of tourist you know uh, to be on a media bus going from the hotel to the stadium and going over the New Jersey turnpike you know as a fan of Simon and Garfunkel if anybody remembers the song you know you're just kind yeah. of sitting there thinking wow I'm in a Simon and Garfunkel song you know here's the New Jersey turnpike um, so I, I was I was just a wide-eyed kid, you know, massively excited. And, uh, and I mean, the football matches themselves, funnily enough, the ones that I saw, I probably saw five or six games. I was only actually in the States for the group stage of the tournament. Um, weren't particularly memorable. Um, but I remember seeing Philippe Albert score a really good goal mm. for Belgium. Dennis Bergkamp was there for the Dutch and... Um, um, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a great great uh, experience. Slightly strange World Cup. Yeah, I was going to ask that because obviously you've covered m- more World Cups since. How does '94 compare, especially in a country that at the time was still getting back to used to liking football or soccer, as they call it? What was it like compared to the other World Cups you've been to? Well, it was uh, you know, the grounds were huge and they were full. The attendances were massive. I think it's still the World Cup with the highest average attendance mm. per game, you know, but, um, but, but in those days, um, it was the knowledge of the public, you know, there was a small hardcore fans of soccer, as they would call it. Um, but the general public at large did kind of buy into it and turn up for the matches, but they didn't have an enormous understanding of a lot of it. Um, I mean, I remember watching the local, TV and they were like box popping people on the street. I think it was, uh, I don't know what the, what the network was, but one of the American networks, and this was kind of on the streets of New York, and they, I can remember this vividly, the interviewer grabbed some member of the public and said, you know, what do you think about the, about, um, 
Maradona coming to the stage. And, uh, and this guy said, oh, yeah, I just love her music. She's awesome, you know. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they, they really didn't know a lot about it. But, uh, but they were enthusiastic, and they turned up in big numbers to watch the game, which heavily affected, uh, you know, depending on where you were. Um, you know, if you were playing in, in uh, Los Angeles, if you were playing in Orlando, then it was a struggle because it was so hot. If you were playing in Detroit or New York or something, it was a very, very different experience. And the matches were more European, you know, because mm. the conditions were more European. But um, but it was very, it was very interesting um, to watch the emergence of the of the US team. You probably remember the previous summer they beat Graham Taylor's England yeah. in a little mini yeah, called the US that, Cup. Yeah. yeah, and the Sun had the headline uh, Yags two planks nil. Which yeah. was um, which was a great sort of anti Taylor headline. Obviously, yeah. it didn't modify for the ninety-four World Cup. But it was uh, it was an Alas who kind of everybody thought was this sort of you know ginger-haired, bearded kind of um, you know guitar-playing uh, kind of anti-hero. But you know they had some really quite good players as well. John Harps was the one who probably made it in England. Mm. But um, Roy Wegley as well, one of my uh, keep your heroes. Yeah, Roy Wagley, of course, yeah, who uh, who we knew a lot about because he'd been in England for a while. So, Steve, do you think that it would have been a different World Cup if uh, England had been involved at all? Well, you know, it might have been. I mean, obviously, England didn't qualify. Uh, they were tipped by the Dutch uh, and Norway in their group, um, which was a tough qualifying group, but they'd really lost their way under Graham Taylor. But, you know, I mean, England had done so well in 1990 and... Um, you know, Gaza was still there, Paul Merson was there, Platt, Walker, uh, Shearer had merged, Teddy Sheringham was there. Mm. I mean, when you look at that team, and you kind of think, God, how did we not actually get to the yeah. final? And, yeah, I think it was a missed opportunity, really, because, I mean, if you think back to 1990, England started poorly in that World Cup and, and grew into the tournament and obviously finished it, you know, glorious failure, I suppose. But... Um, but, you know, the truth is that England weren't great at the beginning of that World Cup. And who knows, we might have grown into the 94 World Cup had we qualified because we had the players. There's no question about that. Only two years later, England were fantastic at Euro 96. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, but, but then again, having said that, you know, maybe had we qualified for the World Cup in 94, Graham Taylor might have kept the job. Terry Venables wouldn't have taken over. And perhaps England wouldn't have had Euro 96. Uh, which which was a glorious summer, you know. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think I think England would have. I don't think England would have won the World Cup in '94, but I think we certainly had the players in the squad there to have to have done all right if we got there. Um, and, and it's a shame. It's a it's a great shame that those players missed out on the opportunity to try and pick up and follow up on what they'd achieved in 1990, of course, because. Um, most of those players from 1990 were still around and at their peak. Yeah, big, big shame. Well, thank you very much for, for looking back on the World Cup with us, Steve. Um, we can't let you go without mentioning the brilliant book you've got out. So tell uh, the listeners about that at the <laughs> moment. Yeah, it's, uh, it's called Match of the Day 365. And um, basically, I suppose, in, in a sentence, it's kind of a history of football in the Premier League years. So it's not just uh, limiting itself to the Premier League but it's football which has happened since 1992 and the birth of the Premier League. So it sort of, uh, it tracks the way that the, the, the top flight has changed and grown and everything else. And obviously 
the emergence of the Champions League and uh, the home nation's performances in tournaments and so on. Um, so they're kind of diary format. So it's a day-by-day kind of on this day. This happened over the last 25 years. Four Four Two magazine kindly described it as perfect toilet reading. And, uh, <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. That is a perfect compliment. It's a brilliant book. We'll, we'll put it on to a link on Twitter as well to, for the listeners. So thank you very much, thank Steve. You. Cheers for that. A pleasure, Ash. Thank you very much. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Great stuff there from Steve and really sets the scene on what is... Now, I've already said in my intro how much I love USA 94, um, but going back to the start of the season when I first started this podcast and I sent out a few themes uh, to a few guys that I knew in the industry, the, the Amar came back to me first of all and said USA 94. So I'm going to go to you first, Amar, because I'm going to plainly ask you, I mean, what was it about USA 94 that made you say that first of all? And for you, is it one of your favourite World Cups? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think for me, it just came at a time in my life where I just finished school. I was just about to start sixth form and um, I was home a lot that summer. And I think I probably watched every single match if that was possible. Mm. Um, I followed it religiously. I filled in all the scores. It was just one of those tournaments where, you know, I just I just remember it vividly. Um, and it's just and, I, and I've always felt that it's had this kind of bad legacy because of the final mainly. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of it gets a bad press basically USA 94 and I've always felt that it was for me a, a really really good tournament with plenty of uh, exceptional talents playing yeah I think it's uh, the brash and the beautiful as the brilliant Barry Davis described it uh, in a documentary about USA 94 which you can find on YouTube that I watched earlier in the week um, and I agree with you there Amar. I think it's it's one of the most colourful tournaments I mean America really as I said in the intro really gave it that razzmatazz which is what I loved about it as they do for most of their sporting events and it was let down by a very drab final that was obviously settled by a penalty shootout ryan obviously you're based in the states um you weren't obviously at the time but is it still how is it seen now the the, usa 94 by the american public um i think it's still pretty revered the world cup here they still you know very much appreciate that they had it here and it obviously started off mls the condition of them getting the world cup was that they started a professional league so in 96 two Mm. years later they started mls so they they see it as sort of the the basis of the game kind of when the game was invented kind of when sky invented soccer in uh in in england of course um but i i've got to admit here guys i was nine years old when 1994 world cup happened and I don't think it was on an awful lot in my house. I can remember watching the final, and I can remember thinking the final was super boring. But um, <laughs> uh, I think the main reason it wasn't on is because England weren't there. Yeah. And I can, I've got two big memories from that World Cup uh, cycle. Certainly that, that final, and us being not very interested in actually watching it. And there was an England against USA game. And it was, I think it was in the build-up, in the qualification period. Yeah, um, I think and it was I the actually, summer before, actually, in 1993. yeah. yeah. That's right. I've looked it up and it was part of something called the US Cup. And Germany were there and Brazil mm. were there. And I can remember being at school the next day because the USA beat England. I think it was 2-0. And I can yeah, remember did, all yeah. these jokes about how, oh, we lost to the Americans. And it was really, really embarrassing, apparently. And, uh, and uh, in the qualification, of course, uh, bringing back Ivan Leonard and he scored for Norway <laughs> against us uh, with uh, Egil Olsen, another Wimbledon manager in charge there for getting the better of Grant Taylor and so on. Yeah. Well, let's talk about England before we get into the meat of the tournament then. Um, let's go into Graham. I mean, that... England team, um, as Steve described, they had some great players in it. Some of the uh, you know wrestlers from Italia ninety, and we had the likes of Alan Shearer and Paul Merson coming through. What went wrong for that England team? Do you think Graham? Two words: Graham Taylor. <laughs> not the um, manager we all hoped for. Do you not well, like that? I, I, <laughs> I, 
I've had two years of his football at Molyneux and given the fact, I mean, taking away what I said last week about the fact that he committed the sin of trying to sell Steve Ball, um, I've not got many happy memories of Graham Graham Taylor's time at Molyneux. Um, Spent a lot of money. um, style, Style of play was confusing at best. And ultimately, he failed. And even though um, Sir Jack Hayward, our um, recently deceased former owner, um, came out just before his death and said that one of his biggest regrets was actually sacking Graham Taylor, I think it did us a favour in some respects because I don't think we were going anywhere under him. But um, bringing it back to England, I think I think Taylor got a lot of um, a lot of stuff wrong. I mean, particularly in that qualifier when he apparently set all his um, tactics around Jostin flow in the Norway game and uh, we, we all know what happened there and it just seemed that the England team under him was just a disorganised mess really and I think we we needed, in a way, we needed that USA 94 um, non-qualification to happen because it was the only way that we could perhaps rebuild and obviously Terry Venables, Terry Venables sorry, came in and then we saw um, the impact that he had at Euro 96. And I just think that if, if, it, hadn't have been for, um, if it hadn't have been for the failure of qualifying for USA 94, we would have never have actually reached the uh, heights that we did in 1996. Yeah, no, good point. Do you think it's all, is it all down to Graham Taylor, though? Because you look ostensibly at the, the England uh, success path, if you will, going from World Cup 90, you know, semifinals, maybe even should have won that tournament. To being terrible in '92, Euro '92, and not even getting into '94, is that all down to Taylor, or is there something else that's caused that? that no, I, do, I, I just think he's probably one of the biggest con- contributing factors to that. I don't think it's completely his fault. I mean, you can you've, you've only got to look at the, unless someone else picked Carlton Palmer. You know, it's down to <laughs> Carlton. <laughs> but um, I just think if you if you look at the um, pattern, like you were saying, there of the England national team over the last. 20, 30 years or so, um, there's obviously something's not been right about the whole setup. So although I, I, I lay a big portion of the blame at Graham Taylor's door, I wouldn't say it was entirely his fault. Would you agree, Amar? Um, I think I think Graham Taylor was just the wrong manager. And I think England at the time were going through a fairly transitional yeah. phase. And it was, it was if you look at the, the, the players that really shone at Euro 96 and World Cup 98, like Shearer, like Sheringham, McManaman, Gary Neville, Beckham, these players had yet to really yeah. uh, fulfil their potential uh, in the Premier League or really, really assert themselves in the England side. And so instead you had this a few remnants of 1990 still in the team, like Stuart Pearce and players like that, uh, kind of on the on the decline. Yeah. And then you had players like Paul Merson and Gascoigne that really were not suited to Graham Taylor's more pragmatic approach to football. And instead, you know, he went for people like Carlton, Carlton Palmer. And Keith I think Carl, I remember he yeah. played Brian Dean a lot and uh, Andy Sinton. And Boy, there was just careful. a lot of... Yeah, you know, I know he means something to you, but for for England, there was a lot of mediocrity in the team, and also the the tactics were long ball tactics. You know, kick and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know, says the At at the time, I think um, the players looked really despondent to his tactics. I remember that, and also in qualifying, they played an exceptional Holland team. I thought who were really good. Bergkamp was emerging at the time. Scored an amazing goal at Wembley, and um, they um, also. Played a very spirited Norway side with some great talents in it as well, like Rekdal, who scored also a great goal at Wembley, I think it was. 
And um, I just think that they were um, they were in a in a group in a tough group. But I completely agree that it took it, it, it England needed that at the time, you know, to kind of jolt them out. And Venables was exactly what they needed afterwards. Mm. Well, let's move on and talk to the tournament. Then I'm going to pick out a few things that happened during the group stages. But before I do, there's a couple of things that um, I wanted to mention that kind of hold dear to my heart. RVSA and IT4. I'm a big fan of mascots for tournaments because they're always weird and wonderful and I think the, the USA 94 one was brilliant for an American audience it was very Disney-like I think it was designed by someone who used to work at the Disney team he was called Striker he was a puppy dog uh, playing football so that was sort of over everything I think you might have seen us put it on Twitter earlier today so that's one memory for me uh, the second as I've said on this pod many times before uh, the USA's away kit which they wore pretty much for nearly all the, I think only one game they wore the home kit the Brazil game uh, the second round game but they wore the away kit for most of the tournament best kit ever not just of the 90s of any generation sitting in my office right now um, very, it, we talked about it on the kit pod and how thick it was especially in that heat but absolutely amazing kit uh, and the last thing is as I briefly mentioned last week uh, is the, the theme tunes to BBC and ITV but BBC had America <laughs> Um, quite apt from uh, I think it's from a musical. I can't say which one it's from now. You guys might remember. Um, and ITV went for a more kind of cheesy rock song called Gloryland, uh, which is brilliant. If you could check that out, I'll put it on Twitter later. Um, but they were the kind of things that re- I think as a as a child as well. I mean, I remember those sort of things more. But um, let's go to the football then. Um, can I just can I just jump in on the go, on the kit there for a second? Go right. The, go. On- that that stonewashed denim kit that's something when you ask about what the legacy of the game is out here people talk about that kit still all the time and i actually did a bit of research into it and talking to people like alexi lalis they actually when they were first revealed the kit they thought it was a prank because it had those <laughs> those stars kind of stretched across it mm. and apparently according to i dug into this even more because i'm that intrigued by this awful awful kit no I, and, uh, i'm very interested go on <laughs> apparently that that distorted kind of star pattern that goes across it they did that by laying stars on shirts and then dragging it across a photocopier. That's oh. genuinely how they got that pattern, apparently. That's and uh, good fact. Yeah, and as you say, very, very thick kits there. I remember one of my friends um, in school, when, when um, MLS first started, he went to America and he brought home a shirt from the New York Metro Stars, mm. which is one of the new MLS teams there. And it was like a hockey jersey. It was like really, really thick. Yeah. And you think of this tournament, which was, I think one of, if not the hottest yeah. World Cup tournament Especially there. certain games, yeah. Yeah, and you imagine wearing these super thick kits with the really, you know, the emblems on them were really heavy as well. I can't, you've got to feel sympathy for those guys in, that, in those conditions. Yeah, definitely. It was a good tournament for kits, though. I was looking at them earlier. The Germany kit was a belter as well, yeah. I remember. And I love the Brazil away kit, the, the blue that they wore, the Umbro kit with the collar, uh, another great kit. But let's talk about the group stage. We mentioned... Uh, England not qualifying. Uh, of course, Wales didn't, thanks to Paul Bowden's miss in the last qualifier uh, over the bar. He did that. Scotland weren't there either. So a lot of the kind of home support uh, went towards Ireland, who were in Group E uh, along with Italy and Mexico. And that, I mean, there's some great memories. There was an Englishman there because he led them in Jack Charlton. Um, and the, the opening game, the 1-0 win over Italy, Ray Houghton's magic moment. I know, Ryan, you had some sketchy memories, but that's one you must definitely remember. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, that's one we've seen again and again, haven't we? Bit of a classic, that one. Yeah, and it was, it, the Ireland team were a good team. What do you, Did you follow them through the World Cup, Amar? I did, actually. I remember everyone kind of, there was a sense of, let's get behind Ireland, England on there. The one thing I do remember really well is that they were in the ultimate group of death, right? Yeah. They ended up Mexico, Ireland, Italy, Norway. It ended up, played one, Played three, won one, drawn one, lost one. So they all finished on exactly level points, did, which yeah. rarely happens. 
Um, and it was remarkable. And it came down to goals scored in the end and Ireland crept through. But they were, um, they were in a great group. And I do remember they had, they had John Aldridge, they had Ray Houghton. So from a Liverpool fan's perspective, there was a lot of uh, uh, Liverpool interest. And I remember Liverpool ended up signing uh, Phil Babb, who had a great tournament. Yeah. Great tackle, then, signed... I always remember that tackle. Yes, yeah. yes. He had a great tournament. And then he, for one reason or another, he never really replicated that form at Liverpool. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, Ireland were really memorable at 94. Graham, that was a great Italy team as well, wasn't it? You look at the yeah. names in there. Maldini was in. Oh, Maldini's played for about 50 years in that team, obviously. But, um, you know, your Baggios and oh, what a both great them, team yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. Both of them. They did the perennial Italy slow start to the tournament, didn't they? You know, I remember mm. my dad saying to me at the time, oh, typical Italy, they're going to start the tournament really slowly and they're going to be much better later on, which, which ended up happening. And it was just the kind of classic Italy moment great perhaps the, the, the moment people remember of Ireland as well is John Aldridge arguing on the side of the giant stadium pitch in the Mexico game in the heat do you remember that yeah I think for a few young people that were probably watching their first world cup they might have learned a few new words that day. <laughs> but um I mean the the thing I remember about Ireland was the way that um everybody really got behind them in England and it was it was like that they were the closest thing that we had to our home nation the BBC and ITV were behind them yeah um, a few disparaging marks from some of the tabloids which you'd expect about them being England's B team and this that and the other but in, in a way it was it, it was great the way that there was a, a team there that everyone could get behind to following the disappointment of uh, England but another thing that I seem to remember regarding Ray Houghton in that uh, group stage and I think it was in the Norway game he picked up the most innocuous yellow card I've ever seen does uh, does anyone else remember that no go on he picked up because they didn't have any water bottles and they mm. didn't have any proper sanctioned water breaks during the games so basically they relied on people on the touchline lobbing these bags of waters to them which Harrison has since said as soon as you open them they were they were useless anyway because the water just used to go everywhere so you didn't actually get a decent drink out of them but one had been thrown onto the pitch during the game and he went over and picked it up. And the referee gave him a yellow card for actually carrying on play whilst having one of these water bags in his hand. <laughs> well, there you go. It's, it I think a- one of my, my big memories of, of uh, the Ireland team there was to do with the, the heat and the water and stuff. Jack Charlton standing on the sideline. Yeah. I think it was the Mexico game. Yeah, it was, yeah. And Giant in the baseball stadium. cap yeah. and, you know, sweated through his shirt within about three minutes of play. And uh, th- this game was at the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to Florida in June, but it's a swamp. And um, apparently the, the pitch temperature was like over 100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, you know, mid-30s we're talking. Some, no, sorry, but around the 30s we're talking there. Um, and I just can't imagine playing a good game of football in those conditions. And just looking at Charlton on the sideline there, you've got to think, wow, that must have been such a struggle. Mm, well, he got a one-match ban, didn't he, for the, the argument that he had in the Mexico game. They, he was sitting in the sort of executive suites for the uh, I think their final game because he was banned for the arguing with the referees because of the water bottles but yeah it was a such a hot World Cup I think we'll find out just how hot when they do Qatar in 2022 but yeah it was a very very it's very what's what's remembered is the heat but you go back to talking about the stars there we mentioned Italy and one of the reasons I always say this World Cup is such a memorable one just because the amount of players who were at the peak of their careers. You look at the names that are in this World Cup. You're looking at Romario, Bibeto, Stoichkov, Hadji, Brolin, Burkamp. The list just goes on. Amar, is that one of the reasons you, you think it stands out for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's funny because, you know, people don't look back at that Brazil team as a, a great Brazil team or great Brazilian generation, even though they went on to win the tournament. 
you know, yet for me, I think they had some amazing individuals, particularly the front two, Romario and Mabeto, who were just an unbelievably great strike partnership, the way they worked together and the way they, they would, the way they would just buzz around up front and uh, be so difficult to pick up. And I, I thought those two were exceptional. But running throughout the tournament, there was, you know, there was Baggio. There was a lot of great, I'd say, number 10s, you know, yeah. uh, Haji, uh, Stoichkov, who can play in that position. Just a lot of players who can, uh, of course, Baggio was, was just unbelievably good for, um, for, for Italy and, and really kind of drove them to the final almost single-handedly. Um, so I think, you know, it really was a, a golden era for creative talent, I'd say. Yeah, and one creator, we should have mentioned this at the top of the show, uh, that opened the ceremony, because um, we'll mention the, the penalty missed by Baggio at the end. But of course, the opening ceremony included one Diana Ross and possibly the worst penalty I've ever seen at any football match. Graham, I'm sure you, you tweeted earlier, actually. Yes, you did. You tweeted earlier that a memorable moment from uh, Diana Ross. That, that was one hell of a penalty, wasn't it, Graham? Oh, it was. And the net exploding on impact was even better. <laughs> even though the ball went nowhere near it. The ball went about a foot wide and the net still exploded on impact. So it, it was just like a brilliant piece of theatre that just uh, had one tiny piece lacking, unfortunately. <laughs> But um, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a supreme, typical, wasn't it? <laughs> well, hey. American opening ceremony. And, um, I, I thought it was a fitting metaphor for uh, American attempts to uh, import soccer over there until yeah. before 1994, wasn't it? A kind of a hit and a massive miss. <laughs> yes, that was a great moment from the opening ceremony. Um, going back to Stars, I mean, the American team, we've mentioned his name already um, in Alexi Lalas that they were led by. Ryan, these guys, are they still heralded out there? The guys like Alexi Lalas, who you see is very much part of the new MLS, Eric Winolda, I'm going to say, yes, Roy Wegerly. Um Guys like that, Tony Malola in goal, are they still seen very much as, you know, legendary status in the States? Yeah, they are, particularly, I'd say, Lalas, because he's still on the screens. He does, uh, he does comment, uh, punditry for Fox. Uh, Wijnaldum is, is still on the screens as well. He does a bit of management as well. They're both very much still in the game. Um, players like Kobe Jones are still yeah. remembered very well, even though I don't think he's uh, doing anything at the moment. But yeah, yeah, that, that sort of that class of 94, if you will, very much still remembered, um, probably because of those shirts. Yeah, it was a great home kit as well. I mean, it wasn't as great. The, the, uh... Did they wear it? I, they wore it in the Brazil game in the second round. The white and uh, red stripes it was, yeah. Uh, okay. go, going back to that shirt as well, oh, I've always thought last year during the World Cup, 20 years since USA 94, why didn't Nike go to town and do a rehash of the uh, USA kit for the World Cup? That would have been brilliant. They missed a the trick there, I think. So um, maybe they'll do it for the 25 in uh, a few years' time. Um, but just going back to a few more things that happened in the group stages, I think one... Um, controversial, two crucial controversial events as well. Firstly, um, you can't talk USA 94 without one Diego Armando Maradona. Um, and the, well, basically what was his last kind of international appearance for Argentina. Um, we all remember his first game against Greece. He scored that goal. And then that celebration where it was fair to say there were already suspicions that he may not be all the ticket and maybe have uh, had a little cocktail before some of those games since the celebration. Um, but do you remember that game, Amar? Do you remember the celebration? Oh yeah, I, I remember it well, and it was just another extraordinary chapter in Diego Maradona's uh, career. And I think if I had to pick my favourite footballer of all time, it would be Diego Maradona. I just absolutely uh, love everything about him um, in, in terms of as a story, in terms of what he's what he's what he's been for the game, and, and just the interest that's been around him throughout his career, and just how magical he was at his best. But of course, this was the dark side of him. Uh, you know, being uh, failing another positive test because he failed a, a test in 1991, 
when he was in Na- at Napoli for cocaine, of course, and he served a 15-month ban. And this was, you know, the build-up to this tournament was all about this is going to be Maradona getting fit again, fighting back, coming back into it. And, uh, you know, he was playing really well, um, but there were suspicions, as you say. And uh, the fact that he, you know, did that sort of full-face maniacal celebration only added to those suspicions. And then then they found this cocktail, this witch's brew of, 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 of drugs in his system. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, you know, usually these athletes come out and say, oh, I had a cough mixture. I didn't know about it. This was like FIFA came out and yeah. said, there's no way you can get this from a cough medicine or anything like that. This was a serious cocktail of uh, performance-enhancing drugs. And uh, it was just an astonishing twist in, in, in the story of, you know, what for me has been one of the most fascinating stories in sport of all time and that's Diego Maradona's story yeah very and I think it completely derailed the Argentinian team after that because they went out in the second round to I mean a very talented Romania side who one that remembered with Georgi Hadji and Eli Dimitrescu and Popescu and Dan Petrescu all that lot that went to the Premier League later on but kind of derailed them even though they had the likes of Canigia and Gabriel Bastia again more massive names uh, from the era that included in that World Cup the other controversial uh, happening of the group stages was the sad new of the Andrew Escobar of Colombia who Colombia very much fancied pre-World Cup one of the favourites going into it um, they went out in the group stages they lost to the, uh, the host USA thanks to an own goal from Escobar and sadly was shot dead uh, later on once the team arrived back home absolutely devastating for the team and for football um, that's taken it too far isn't it Graham? It is um <sighs> I don't really, sorry, I don't really, I'm a bit stuck for words of what yeah. to say about it. There's not much you can say about it. No, there isn't, there isn't. I mean, it's just a, it's a really sad turn of events given, given everything that had happened. But it, it, it just, it's one of those things where football really shouldn't be, despite various sayings, it shouldn't be a matter of life or death, really. Mm. Yeah. The other two things I mentioned in the group stage is, um, or oh, a couple more things actually. The first game under under the roof, which was an opening game, was USA and Switzerland at the Pontiac Silver Day, and it was the first World Cup game played with a roof, which were ended in a one-all draw with Roy Hodgson managing Switzerland. Uh, we had Oleg Selenko becoming the first player to score five goals in one World Cup match when he scored five for Russia against Cameroon, who had Roger Miller playing on their team, who was the oldest player to play in a World Cup. Um, and then lastly, we've mentioned the goal by Saudi Arabia's Awaran, who went round the whole pitch and scored against Belgium. Another memorable moment from the group stages. Um, before we talk more and go delve into a bit more of the later stages of the tournament, we're going to talk to today's guest. He played in the group stages uh, against the Ni- Argentina team as well. Uh, for Nigeria, one of the surprise packages of USA 94, their first World Cup. And he later went on to play for Everton in the Premier League. It's Daniel Amakachi. Daniel Amakachi, thank you for joining us on Alive and Kicking. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, my pleasure. I'm playing, yeah. Oh, good stuff, yeah. good to hear. Um, we're going to take you back to USA 94 in a bit because that's uh, the theme of this week's show. But before that, I wanted to ask you, um, you hold quite a uh, unique record of the first ever Champions League goal. Do, do you, is that something you're aware of and, and you remember at the time? Yeah, definitely. Not, uh, I don't think when I scored it, I don't, uh, I, I don't even know what happened. But, you know, uh, years back uh, in... Uh, I think in the 1999, I think that's when I uh, I knew about it. So uh, it took for it took forever, you know, uh, to uh, to know about it. A friend of mine called me up and said, "Ah, oh, they just uh, on a G on ESPN had them just watching it." I said, "What?" They said, uh, "You're the first player that ever scored in the UEFA Champions League," and you know, it's something I never knew. But you know, it's uh, gone down to history, and uh, I'm enjoying it at the moment. 
Mm. It's a good quiz question for anyone. That was for, for Club Bruges, that. But let's talk about you say 94 then, um, which is this week's theme. Um, you played there for Nigeria. It was their first World Cup. What an amazing yeah. uh, big deal that was for you and, and for the team. Tell us how it felt to, to represent your country at, at USA 94. Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, I think it was a journey that uh, Nigeria as a football country has been looking forward to, you know, and uh, I was uh, lucky and opportune to be, uh, you know, one of, one of the first players that uh, qualified the country to, uh, you know, to the World Cup. And uh, we didn't just go to the World Cup. We were on the top of our game, you know, in uh, in the '93, '94 season in, uh, in 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 the world. Uh, just after winning the uh, the African Cup of Nations in Tunisia, and then uh, you know probably played the best football that any African person has seen, you know, for a very long time. And you know, by then I think we were being tipped as probably will be the first African country that can ever win, uh, you know, the World Cup. Mm. No, but it, was, it wasn't meant to be, and uh, but we did have a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. Our first game against uh, Bulgaria, you know, I think uh, it was a shock for the world that Nigeria could beat Bulgaria by three goals. You know, Bulgaria was on the top of their game, you know, in that decade, and then uh, you know narrowly lost to uh, to Argentina two one, and then uh, you know defeated Greece two zero, and unfortunately, you know, couldn't uh, pass the Italian after. Considering a silly goal in the 89th minute, and uh, you know, ended our run, you know, for the World Cup. How much, how much of an amazing experience was it for you personally to to play in such a a big tournament? Yeah, well, you know, it's um, my first World Cup that I watched. You know, as a child, was in uh, was in '82. You know, when Italy won the World Cup, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, watching you know the like of uh, of Falcao, you know, Paolo Rossi, Zico. You know, a few of them, you know, that did very, very well in that World Cup. And for me to be, uh, you know, part of it in 94, I think it it was an honor. And it, it was an experience that I did enjoy and I will never forget. I just had, had a wonderful uh, had a wonderful tournament, you know, scored two goals. You know, uh, one against Bulgaria, one against Greece. And the one against Greece, I think, has been topped probably as the top best five World Cup goals ever. So... So it's just an experience that I just have to keep enjoying. Mm, definitely. And, and being in America, was that something of an experience as well? Because obviously it was a World Cup that was very new to the country as well. They were a country that wasn't really used to playing football or soccer, as they called it. Did you enjoy the, to, to be in America for those few weeks? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the good thing about the Americans, you know, whatsoever is going down, I think they always want to come and watch an experience and just have the fun, you know. And uh, that's that's what made, the, you know, the stadium always jam-packed and... Uh, you know, uh, automatically they embraced us because American is all about entertainment, you know, and the Nigerian played a very entertaining, entertaining or flamboyant kind of football, you know, and they, even after scoring goals, we always, you know, give them a show and all that. So they appreciate stuff like that. But it was it was fun and experience, I think, for all we that, uh, that you know, were in the World Cup and then uh, them that, uh, you know, watch it for the first time. And I remember I was watching a TV program and... Uh, you know, they were going around the street, uh, you know, TV uh, broadcasting, mm. was, and asking questions, you know, who Maradona is, and they will say, no, who? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, and, and he said, oh, incredible, how can you sit there and tell me you don't know who Maradona is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, and ah, he's like Michael Jordan, and now nah, he can't be like Michael Jordan, you know? So, you know, stuff like that, it was incre- incredible, but it was an experience. Mm. That World Cup, 
at, at your move to, to England and the Premier League and Everton, which yeah. you're, you're now remembered as a, very much a cult hero. How did the move to Goodison Park come about? Uh, well, you know, Goodison Park was, uh, you know, was, was uh, it just came out of the bloom because we, uh, you know, my agent and, uh, you know, the club, Club Bruges, uh, were deep in talk with, uh, with a move to Juventus. You know, uh, and uh, but I was just uh, you know sitting back doing my training, continue my training, and all that during preseason, and, and and then I think the deal fell out, out, and then uh, you know had a phone call and said you know Everton are willing to take you in, and I said well I would love to be in the Premiership, it's an experience for me, but, you know to be in the Premiership, but you know they told me ah but it's an Everton, you know Everton is a racist team. You know, you'll be the first black player to, you know, to play at Everton. And I said, you know, I, I don't think if they are racist, then they they wouldn't have asked for my services being a black man from Africa. Hmm. You know, so but you know, I end up, uh, you know, you know, signing, putting pen on paper, and you know, end up at Good And the first day I came out of the tunnel and you know to be introduced, you know, I felt the love of my life. So. You know that that was an experience, and uh, you know I enjoyed my two seasons there, and you know, can't complain about any second that I spent there. Mm-hmm. You're best remembered uh, for the FA Cup run, especially the semi-final when you scored uh, against Tottenham. Is that the highlight of your time at Everton? Uh, well, you know, it, I think it it was a turning point, you know, of my uh, career there. You know, I went to, uh, you know, when I got to Everton, you know, uh, I thought I was fast and strong, but you know, when I got to the Premiership, I knew I had a lot of work to, you know, to do. You know, uh, but then, uh, you know, I kept working hard and believing in what I can do, and you know, the support of all my teammates, you know, especially, you know, uh, you know, the Watson, you know, the captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you know, he was, uh, you know, he was, you know, really there and pushing it. You know, a few of them, you know, the onsword and all that, and you know, mm. and just kept pushing. But you know, I kept doing my thing on training and you know, on on reserve games, and you know, I was on fire, you know, during that period. But you know, I just have to keep, uh, just sit back and wait for my, uh, for my opportunity. And I think the opportunity came and. But it didn't come. I think I I I created the opportunity for myself because, you know, uh, Paul Ryder was injured and you know, Joe uh, Royal was keep insisting that you know the doctor should fix him up and go in you know for five more minutes, and you know, the doctor just said you know it's done, it's done. But you know, we were playing short one, and I just got up and you know was warming up already, then just walked to the you know the, the front official and said, listen, well, you know it's a substitute. You know, and it just it just happened because he should ask question where the paper and all that stuff, but you know, he never did and just read the number and I, you know, I just put my feet off over the line and I saw Joe running towards the line. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, but you know, but I was already across the line and we're done with the substitute. If I have to come out then we're gonna end up playing with one more shot and you know, sports were really putting pressure where two goes two goes to one you know, then, but they were really put on pressure. But as, as it turned out to be, in, you know, in the next ten minutes, I ended up scoring two goals on the, you know, Everton were in the finals. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was it. Yeah. That was uh, was an experience. Mm-hmm. And then to play at Wembley and and to be an FA Cup winner, that's got to be something that's also a big highlight for you. Oh uh, yeah, a first African player to win the FA Cup, definitely. You know. Uh, 
you know, when, when we growing growing up in Africa, you know, uh, I, back then, you know, the FA Cup was huge. You know, I think uh, it's a global. It was a global, uh, you know, cup game. You know, uh, you know, sitting in front of TV and it's not just sitting in front of TV. You know, you live in a neighborhood probably where only one or two homes have TV back then. You know, when I was growing up, and we always find our way to uh, you know to go there and sit down in front of TV and watch. And for me now to be a to be at Wembley, you know, playing the FA Cup final that I watched as a as a young child, you know, it's it, it can't get better than that. And you know, not just playing, but you know, even beating the mighty Manchester United back mm-hmm. then, you know, to win cup, you know, that was that that was a long, you know, a long stand. And you know, it's it's uh, it's unfortunate for you know a lot of great players, you know, players like Diego, you know, and uh, and Pele that will tell you that you know. What if they could turn, you know, back the time they would have loved to play at Wembley, you know? So you sh- I think it's, it's that that's huge when when uh, such great, you know, a legend says such, and then you should, uh, you know, give God the glory that you were opportune to be a uh, you know, part of the old Wembley and enjoy the experience. Brilliant. We can't let you go as well without asking about the Olympics as well. You were part of the, the Nigerian team that won the, the Olympic gold medal. In 1996, yeah. how did that compare to playing in a World Cup? And and obviously again another big moment for you. I think I think the World Cup when it comes to football, I think the World Cup uh, is the ultimate. But when it comes to an athlete, I, I mean, an athlete, I think the Olympics is the ultimate. Mm. You know, a, a quick story. Uh, you know, I, back home in Africa, especially in Nigeria, you know, when you apply for a visa, you know, it's a long process. You know, especially when you apply for. Or the British or the American visa. Uh, and I was uh, I went to the American consulate had an appointment and uh, you know uh, got there and you know a lot of you know uh, hey I'm a catch here blah blah fans taking pictures and all that and the consulate asked who is that and they told him that I'm a catch yeah I said well it's a Nigerian international can you bring it to my office and then you know I was sat down and I was hey how you doing blah 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 and then you know. And uh, yeah, I had you an Olympian, and I said, "Yeah, I'm not just an Olympian on Olympic gold medals, you know." And uh, you know, you have to you have to wait forever, probably four to five to six months, the process for me to for you to get a visa, and I got it the same day. Okay. You know, yeah, that shows you how powerful and you know an Olympian yeah. is you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to an athlete in the world. So it was an experience, and it's an experience that uh, you know I cherish every day because. You know, for you to be an Olympian, I think uh, it's something huge and it's a blessing. Mm, well, thank you very much for talking to us, Daniel. You're you're, catch- you're coaching now in Finland, aren't you? Uh, tell us about that quickly. Oh, well, you know, I'm uh, you know probably one of the few or, or the only you know head coach you know an African in Europe. You know, I'm, I'm coaching a team. JS Hercules is a second division team in uh, in Finland. You know, this is my second month, and uh, you know, it's a challenge. And I love challenges, so. You know, we uh, are enjoying it, and uh, hopefully, uh, by grace, you guys are going to hear more about uh, about the team and me and my progress. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's an experience, it's a journey, and it's a journey that I would love to uh, you know to finish and enjoy till the end. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. See you later.
great to hear from Daniel Amakachi then, a real cult hero of Everton and some great memories for both the World Cup. Sorry if the sound was quite, quite out there. As he said, he's now coaching in Finland, so the, the line wasn't at best at times, but I hope you got everything you wanted from that interview because I thought it was brilliant. Um, just treading back a step, um, we were talking about Andrew Escobar before we spoke to Daniel, and Amar had some more thoughts on that sad uh, kind of happening that happened during the group stages and after this. What, what were you going to say, Amar? Yeah, I just wanted to mention really probably my favourite uh, documentary uh, in, uh, about football, which is called The Two Escobars, uh, which was a really, really interesting, fascinating documentary telling the story of Andres Escobar and also the, the, the famous drug lord Pablo Escobar and his links to Colombian football in that era. Um, and it really um, all sort of culminated at USA 94, where you had this generation of footballers that were the Colombian golden generation, Aspria, Valderrama, Rincon, Escobar as well, Rene Higuita, those those sorts of players who um, had come through at a time at clubs that had been funded by Colombian drug lords. And it's really one of the most fascinating stories um, of the time. And um, the, the, the fate of those players was inextricably linked with the Colombian uh, you know, cocaine runners and, 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 and mafia overlords that were funding those teams. And on the day of that match against the USA uh, in the documentary, it reveals how they all received this message on their TV screens at the hotel uh, telling them, you know, warning them that they better not lose. Um, and the coach of the Columbia side at the time was told that he had to pick certain players from certain teams. So this kind of shadow of crime that was hanging over the team throughout the tournament uh, you know, culminating in the eventual tragic death of Andres Escobar is one of the most astonishing, you know, stories mm. in, in, in World Cup history. So it really was just a really astonishing moment. Mm. Didn't Very. René Higuita actually go to prison at one point for drug running for Escobar? Was that true? Yeah, he sure. went to, he was, yeah, he was filmed visiting uh, Pablo Escobar. And the players used to go to Pablo Escobar's ranch and play football there. And it was something that he expected. And it's all in this documentary. So I won't spoil it for you guys if you haven't seen it. But it's absolutely brilliant documentary. And uh, Rene Higuita, I believe, missed, uh, I think he missed USA. Yeah, he wasn't the goal. No, he wasn't, yeah. Yeah, he was banned. But of course, he was memorable in, 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 in Italia 90 uh, as being this kind of renegade goalkeeper. And of course, he did the great one of the great saves of the 90s in the, with the Scorpion, the Scorpion kick at Wembley. So, yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, good good tip there Amar check out that documentary it's uh, another documentary that we should have mentioned earlier actually as well the Do I Not Like That documentary that was filmed around the time of England's failure to qualify for USA 94 which is a brilliant watch um, it's where the Carlton Carlton comes from and watching Phil Neal be quite the uh, the yes man to, to Graham Taylor it's a great watch I'm sure it's available on YouTube or trying to get out and stick it on Twitter for you um, on a lighter note I'm going back to kits again I always do that because there's one man we have to mention um, as well who played at USA 94 Ryan Georgie Campos kits do you remember those i thought you were about to say that i played at usa 94 <laughs> for a second <laughs> do you remember the george campos kits that he designed himself oh gosh yes the uh, the goalkeeper yeah yeah yes. they were fantastic weren't they the, yeah. the, the bright pinks and the yellows oh i loved it yeah brilliant. i keep going back to you for kits i'm not sure why that's happening but um i think it's just a usa influence on me but let's talk um, <laughs> later in the tournament then uh, the second round um it produced some decent matches. You know, Germany um, beat Belgium. Spain was still involved then. Um, the Romania-Argentina game, as we mentioned. Brazil beat the hosts with uh, Leonardo getting sent off despite that. Um, and Bulgaria were really coming into their own as well. But it's where the, the quarterfinal stage where the tournament really kind of set alight. Uh, the game I really want to focus on is the Brazil-Holland game, which is probably the game of the tournament. Um, would you say, Graham, has got fond memories of that game? 
Oh yeah, very good. I mean, it was um, it, it was a back and forth end to end game. I mean, it, I mean, it, you you look at it and it was five goals in the second half, and it, it wasn't to say that the first half was particularly particularly bad because it was still like quite a quite a competitive game of football in the first half. But th- that that spell of about twenty five minutes in the second half where you just saw five goals fly in, and it, 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 they just seemed to keep getting better and better. And you got Romario and Babito that were in um, that were in fine form at the time, and um, they were. They were they were backed up by the likes of Branco and Marcio Santos in that Brazil side. They 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 were just great to watch, and it, I think I think that performance in the quarterfinal really epitomised the talent that Brazil had. Yeah, it was, and it's of course where we first ever saw the baby rocking celebration from Bibeto, which has now been kind of copied over and over again. That's where we first saw it. And to make everyone feel that little bit older, that baby that was rocked by Bibeto now is 17 and he plays in the youth team in Brazil. So that will make you feel old. Um, but that happened at USA 94. Another big moment in the quarterfinals was Bulgaria's big win over Germany, um, that, who were the holders at the time, the 1990 champions. And Jordan Lenchkoff, his big header, and Mark, that was some game and that was some moment, wasn't it? Oh, that was an unbelievable um, header from Lechkov, that diving header. You'd expect a player to, to go in with their foot, but he really went for a diving header. And I think diving headers are a little bit passe now. We don't see a lot of diving headers anymore um, in the Premier League or in world football as much. Um, and the other great thing about the Bulgaria team is, and they've done interviews in the past, and I've, I've interviewed Stoichkov on a couple of occasions, and he's a brilliant character, really outspoken, everything you'd expect and want you know, Hristo Stoichkov to be, he is. Um, they were hard drinking. They they were enjoying themselves out in the USA. They were not living like monks. I can tell you that. Um, and you know, Lechkov for me was a funny looking guy, wasn't he? He kind of yeah. he looked a bit like an accountant. He looked so much <laughs> older football. than he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he looked like a, a much older accountant playing football. But yeah, they they were exceptional. I mean, Stoichkov was the was the creative fulcrum of that team. Um, but Lechkov was devastating as well. They were, and that was a brilliant game. They were, they were fantastic. There's not enough uh, properly bald footballers these days anymore, <laughs> is there? You, you had your Attilio Lombardos, you had your Lechkovs back then. There seemed to be more space for it back then. I've got a, a quick anecdote about Stoichkov, by the go way. On, go for uh, it, a friend of mine uh, after school moved to Barcelona for a couple of years and he actually started uh, dating Stoichkov's daughter. How and random! From, but uh, first, uh, well, from him, I can tell you that he is the most terrifying man in the world. If you date his daughter, I, I can imagine. imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that is good. Oh god, imagine that being your father-in-law. Yeah, he looks like a guy who should be in the mafia, doesn't he? He's got that scowl about him. Yeah, no, but what? A I couldn't imagine. Fight. Yeah, showing up at his doorstep to take his daughter out to the cinema or something—that'd be the most terrifying experience of your life. I think. But I'd rather want to stay at home and talk to Horacio Stoitskov about the '94 <laughs> World Cup than take his daughter out. Oh, bizarre. Well, that would be very bizarre. But no, great player. I was remembering that tournament. I think Kevin Keegan was on commentary. He would have been, uh, was that? Yeah, he would have been Newcastle manager at the time, wouldn't he? And he was talking about possibly signing uh, Stoichkov. That would have been amazing to see him in the Premier League. We never quite got Hadji either. We got uh, Dimitrescu and we got Popescu, as I said earlier, but we never quite got uh, the two big names from that tournament. Let's just let's move on to the very latter stages then, um, the semi finals. Uh, Brazil beat Sweden, a very talented Sweden team who went on to finish third places in the whole tournament. Uh, then they had the guys like Brolin and Darlene and Kenny Anderson, great, great team, and a young Henrik Larsson as well. Italy overcome Bulgaria as well. Uh, Roberto Baggio, once again, absolutely instrumental in that game, as he was throughout the tournament. He really was the go-to guy for Italy. 
Um, until the final, and as we said earlier, I mean, the final is looked upon kind of unfavourably because it was a very drab final. I mean, as Amar mentioned earlier, the Brazil team wasn't, it's not remembered, unfortunately, uh, as a great Brazil team, despite that front two. And uh, it's more moulded in the guise of Dunga um, in the centre midfield, that defensive midfielder. Uh, it was a drab final and it was decided on penalties. Uh, Ryan, you mentioned earlier, it's one of the games you, you remember the most. Do you remember that dastardly penalty by Roberto Baggio? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That penalty that finished it all. It wasn't a great shootout in general, I don't mm, think. Yeah. Um, but that, that whole game, I was surprised. To, I was looking up recently and how that uh, Brazil team was perceived in Brazil for that tournament. They were, they were not liked at all. No. They were kind of uh, they were accused of anti-football and being too defensive. And I, you know, I didn't really appreciate that at the time. But you look back at it now and you think, yeah, that, that might have been the case. Uh, um, and as for the final, yeah, I, I just my residing memories being that Oh, thank God it's penalties now. Nothing else has happened. Yeah, it really was. Amar, do you share the same sort of view on what unfortunately didn't really give the tournament the, the send-off it should have been? Yeah, I think what you had was two teams that uh, had a philosophy, which was to defend first um, and, and, and keep it tight at the back and, and have a strong defence, which was often the case with um, you know with Italy uh, many, many times. But everyone expected Brazil to play the Jogo Bonito-style football and you know, I think if you look at that Brazil team now in the context of Brazil since, uh, you know, and, and Brazil particularly in recent years, um, I think, you know, they were a very expansive team. They just happened to, you know, have players like Dunga at the time who were seen as very unfashionable and it wasn't really the the, um, the done thing to have a defensive uh, you know, water carrier type midfielder like that and build your team around him. But he was instrumental to their success. I think uh, Rai was the more popular player in a way and was the captain and uh, he was often peripheral compared to Dunga's influence on the team um, and I think you know like I said before Romario Bebeto those two as, as a front two were just exceptional but in the final they were they were cancelled out nullified by a great great Italian defence and a real golden generation of, of, of Italian players and um, and it's a shame that the final didn't live up to the spectacle and the uh, and uh, and the and the wonderful setting of the final as well, uh, because it has tarred the the memories of the World Cup. But it was still a, a fantastic tournament. Mm. To play to play devil's advocate, though, there's quite a lot of World Cup finals that aren't great. 1990 yeah. wasn't exactly no. fantastic, was it? No, it, 1990 is quite seen again through kind of blinkered eyelids as, as people in the 90s. But that was quite a defensive World Cup in general, even though I love it a lot, Italian 90s, so that in Mintrace, it was a great tournament. But that was a kind of defensive tournament. I think we were overtaken by what England did. But yeah, I think I agree. I think a lot of finals in the end have kind of a let down a tournament, didn't they? Um, let's, let's go to Graham. I mean, the tournament itself was brilliant. The final wasn't. But were Brazil pretty much the right winners? I think they, I think they were. I think they were a bit unfairly persecuted in the sense that um, the the nation didn't see them as a as a genuine, authentic Brazil side in 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 the sense of the style of play. But just going back to your point there about Italian ninety being defensive, um, UEFA actually, sorry, FIFA actually tried to rectify that with this World Cup because this was the first World Cup I believe that had three points for a win in the group stages. Correct. And the reason for that was they wanted teams to actually go out and attack and see that there was more at play this time because of the fact that they were put off by how overly defensive um, Italian 90 had been. But I do think Brazil were worthy winners, but the final was pretty tedious um, up, until the, um, up until the penalty shootout. I don't really remember 
pretty much anything from that final apart from the shootout. Yeah, and that terrible penalty. Pogba skied it from Roberto Berger, which he didn't deserve because it's such a brilliant tournament. Well, we've kind of reached the end of the tournament. I'll just go around to the guys again and just see if there's anything else they wanted to mention about what was a truly memorable tournament. So to start with you, Ryan, anything else you want to say? Um, well, just just like to you know, emphasise the impact that World Cup has had on America. I mean, yeah. Before then, we had obviously uh, in the 70s when Pele came over and had the NASL, which collapsed under its own weight from uh, expanding too quickly, something which the Chinese Super League might find is soon going to happen, incidentally. Um, but it, it created the MLS and it's created a, a soccer culture if you will, <laughs> in this country. It's still, it's still very much the fourth fourth most favourite sport, but it's, you know, we're seeing it almost overtaking baseball in terms of popularity at the moment, and I think as the world grows smaller and the internet brings the world together, it's certainly uh, the bubble of American sports is being burst a little bit and, and football's coming into it, so I think, and when we trace everything back, it's all down to that World Cup yeah. and those tenant kits. Well, the attendances of that World Cup, I don't think we've mentioned it, are still some of the highest attended attendances at any World Cup ever. I know that has to do with the size of some of the stadiums, but it still says a lot that the appetite wasn't there from an American point of view. Yeah, an average of 69,000 per game. Yeah, that's pretty high. That's pretty high, yeah. Uh, Amar, is there anything else you want to look back on on what is uh, one of our favourite World Cups? I think, I'm not sure if we mentioned it earlier, but I think Dennis Bergkamp's goal against... Yeah, it's just unbelievable. Um, one of the great World Cup goals. And it was also a very notable tournament for Dennis Bergkamp because it is where he developed his fear of flying. Yes, um, yeah. After an engine cut off when, when Holland were flying uh, to, between matches. So, uh, you know, a, a, a notable uh, tournament for Bergkamp for good and bad reasons. Yeah, Arsenal fans are probably regretting that whole thing because he could have won many more medals if he'd allowed to fly later in his career at the Emirates and uh, Grand Prix. And then finally, Graham, is there anything else you wanted to say about our brilliant look back at USA? I was going to mention, oh, sorry, I was going to mention the crowd as well, yeah. um, but you, you kind of just covered that there. But I think that was a big factor in the likes of Bulgaria and Romania progressing so far, the fact that they were playing in front of crowds of 50, 60, 70, 80, even in some cases 90,000 people. I think it's impossible not to feel inspired and motivated when you've got that kind of noise behind you. Um, and particularly, particularly the matches played in um, California as well, um, they were, you're talking 90 plus thousand people going to those games. And I think it was quite, um, quite handy that a lot of the Latin American sides tended to play in those games because Colombia, Argentina and Brazil all attracted big crowds. Um, to, to, to California. But the other thing I remember um, closer to home was the marketing campaign that McDonald's put behind the tournaments. The happy and obviously it was much bigger in, in, in America, but I remember going to um, having my ninth birthday party at McDonald's and it was about six months before the tournament started. And we were all given like World, World Cup USA 94 footballs uh, that were included with the happy meals. Oh, and, I remember those. Yeah. All of the bits of all of the bits of merchandise as well. Where I think we had some souvenir cups and a few other bits and pieces. And it was just a shame that there we are, all all getting ready for the World Cup. And uh, some of my friends that weren't really interested in football at the time had to break the bad news to them that England weren't actually going to be playing in this. And I think they pretty much lost interest there and then. Oh, brilliant! Definitely as well. I, I think I've got. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, by the way. 
I think I think McDonald's actually released a burger called the Hattrick Cheeseburger for the USA 94 World Cup. And it was just a standard cheeseburger, but it had three patties in it. And it was the greatest thing ever. And I, I <laughs> hungered for it for many years after when they took it off the market. There you go. Bring it back, McDonald's. <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. Um, well, that kind of rounds up our sort of look back at USA 94. Uh, great World Cup and great look back with the guys there. It is my favorite World Cup for all the razzmatazz, everything that America gave us. So thank you for that. Before I go, a couple of things I have to mention. Uh, firstly, a big happy birthday to West 12 Media, the guys that help put on this podcast. They were a year yesterday. Um, they do this podcast and the QPR one and done a brilliant job. So thank you for helping us share our 90s experience with you and putting on the pod. So big stuff. Hopefully more to come. And just a big thank you to the guests tonight. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Amar. We'll be back next week. As always, check out Twitter for the theme that we'll be talking at AK90s. And if you've ever got a theme you'd like us to talk about, please drop us a line. It's always good to hear what you guys think and like to talk about. But until then, keep it 90s. This podcast is a West 12 Media and Burble Media production. Hello, I am Gabriel Maylard. I am one of the producers of AK90s as well as a QPR podcast. And I just wanted to tell you guys about my new podcast. It's called Going Somewhere, and it's at GoingPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's about journeys, travel, and stuff. This week I spoke to Danny Boyle, so if you want to give us a listen, please do. We're Going Somewhere podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, and we're at GoingPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Cheers. Hello.